0: Welcome to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast, hashtag Pitbull Stories Edition. In all of the installments of Pitbull Stories, I have special guests who share their stories of what it was like to um, acquire a Pitbull-type dog, to live with a Pitbull-type dog, and kind of share their experience of how they worked through some of those stigmas and how they advocate for the breed now. I've been the proud owner of two blocky-headed dogs, and our current blocky-headed dog, Waylon, an American Staffordshire Terrier and I know what it feels like to experience some of the stigmas that the world wants to throw at you and my intention with this series is to reassure all of you amazing blocky-headed owners that our beloved pitbulls are amazing and we can play a huge role in advocating for the breed. So please enjoy these episodes and if you'd like to be a guest on Pitbull Stories please send me a DM over on the Instagram at feeling underscore nco. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast, hashtag Pitbull Stories Edition. Um, I have another wonderful guest with me. Um, so, uh, do you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about you, where you are? I'm Johanna. I'm in New Jersey.
1: I'm currently a dog trainer and a big advocate for pit bulls.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, Okay, so I want to hear how you kind of got started with blocky headed dogs. So, who was your first? My first
1: one that was my own is my current dog, Cruz. My first experience with blocky headed dogs was when I was a teenager and I was working at a shelter, and there were a lot of them there. And I haven't had a lot of previous experience besides hearing the stigma. And actually working with them and being at the shelter, I just kept seeing like these dogs are just particularly really struggling at the shelter because they're there longer than a lot of the other dogs. They're overlooked. And they just seem so particularly sensitive, energetic. So I started really jiving with them just because they were the underdogs in that setting, even though I didn't know much about them before that.
0: Yeah. So, um, okay. So when you were working in the shelter, do you feel like You had mentors like in that setting that helped you like understand them or not so much? Like, tell us more about what that experience was like.
1: Not at all. That was part of what actually led me to wanting to be a trainer is it was a shelter that had the best of intentions, but really didn't understand behavior at all and had a fair amount of warehousing happening where dogs weren't very adoptable. So they were trying not to adopt them out and hold them for the right home. And then the dogs were just suffering because of it, even though the people running the shelter really meant the best. So what started happening is they had someone that volunteered to come in as a trainer at a certain point. And there were these dogs that had been there for a while that I'd known for for months that I felt for and spent a lot of time with, I was there every day. And then this volunteer trainer came in and he was very Caesar Milan type and just like, oh, I need to come in and dominate these dogs to show them what's what. And I'm like, that poor dog is terrified. Can you please not be yanking this dog that I love? But at the same time, I'm there as a high school kid and there's these all adults in charge of everything. I'm like, I don't really have the power to say anything to speak up. I don't have the knowledge. It's just my gut telling me that you don't have to do it this way. So that really motivated me to want to get the knowledge, get more information to see what's really out there to help these dogs in a more meaningful way than what I saw happening around me.
0: Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people listening, like intuitively, can recognize when something isn't right, right? Like, even as a teenager, right? Like, dude, you're being a jerk to these dogs, and why? And I feel like I feel like blocky-headed dogs in particular have been really susceptible to some of the harsher methods of training, right, just because of the package. And I think that, unfortunately, right, like some people are trying to do their best. They're like, okay, well, this is the the trainer, quote-unquote trainer. Maybe I need to default to them. But you always had a sense of like, there has to be a better way.
1: Yeah, it was just so drastically different than how I was interacting with those dogs, and, it, and the sense of authority from the person, thankfully, didn't outweigh that for me. It's just, I just spent months walking this dog with no issues, just being kind to this dog, and then this person just comes in, being like, "This dog, just because they're a pit bull, needs a heavy hand," and these are things we have to do immediately based on a, a appearance and nothing else. That was like that just doesn't feel right. And even though I had, you know, initially had some some wariness going into the shelter like oh what's the deal with pit bulls like oh they're just like every other dog they just have their specific needs and quirks and it stopped really being about labels especially at the shelter where it's like maybe it's a pit mix maybe it's a lab mix like we they're blocky headed but there's no clear line there there's a lot of mixes that were coming in so to kind of lump it in because that dog has a slightly larger head even though his body is tiny it just seems so off to me
0: yeah so um, during your time at the shelter, did you see blocky-headed dogs find loving homes, and then some not? Like, tell us more about that. Because, you know, I I, I got a lot of flack for an episode I did with Wayland's breeder because there's a lot of feelings in the pitbull community about breeding, and you know, the argument is there's all these dogs in shelters. Why are we doing that? And I hear you all. I really do, right? <laughs> and I want people to keep listening. I know some people were upset with me over the breeding thing, but. I do want to share more perspectives because I know that shelters are full of blocky headed dogs. I'm not trying to like ignore that fact, but, um, can you speak to that a little bit more? Like what your experience was like seeing them get adopted out and then to your point about like some more of like the warehousing stuff that was happening.
1: Yeah. I I listened to some of that episode and I'm all for getting dogs from responsible places whether it's a rescue, whether it's a breeder. I think that's the real struggle. I've seen people end up with dogs that have so many problems that even though they love them the bits, there's always so much that they can do to help them based on their genetics, based on what they experienced before they ever had them. And I see well-intentioned rescues and breeders who just don't know what they're doing well enough. So I'm not for breeders i'm not for rescues i'm for responsible which whichever one you do and you know that being said it's like we we need to have some dogs that are being bred responsibly to have sound temperament dogs out there and Mm -hmm. a lot of the pit bulls i do run into rescues unfortunately have a lot of issues have a lot of struggles and they're wonderful dogs that i love wholeheartedly but they're also not a dog i would place with any family and a lot of times as a trainer, I get calls about those dogs where I'm like, okay, let's make this work. You're going to love this dog, but also this dog is a lot more work than what you were thinking initially. And it's going to be much more of a challenge for you to fit into your home. Uh, and it, but it is heartbreaking, you know, being at the, at the rescue and involved in that world where we see all these dogs, where there's this, you know, happy-go-lucky lab that has an issue like resource guarding. So, so it's, it's, there's something there. And then there's this pit bull who has no issue and is happy go lucky. And they do get overlooked for that lab with that other issue. So you do get that. And it's, it's really, I feel like trying to find someone that's responsible to help you with the process. If you, as a novice pet owner don't know what you're doing is highly recommended because it's so hard to know, without some someone's guidance, I feel like in this day and age where so many people are like oh yeah we're not going to tell you about this dog's issues because once he's in your home you're gonna keep him and I see you know backyard breeders doing that and I see rescues doing that sometimes uh, yeah. Yeah. which is heartbreaking in both cases so that's why I kind of responsibility is at the heart of it all whether wherever you're getting your dog
0: yeah and I think you know I think that the conversation around you know, responsible pit bull ownership and acquiring dogs from responsible places, that really focuses on making sure that the general public is not getting a dog who is at worst dangerous, at best just a shitload of work. You know what I mean? And like, I was totally that person, right? I adopted a pit bull from the shelter. I had no idea what I was doing. And while he was amazing and I loved him, he was a liability. He bit a lot of dogs. I'm lucky I never got into any major legal trouble with him, but I had no idea. You know what I mean? And I think that, um, that's. I feel like that's just something that the the adopt, don't shop people don't want to hear, but I have worked on that side. You've worked on that side. We get those calls, these well-meaning people. I wanted to adopt a pit bull. And now they have this dog on their hands who we have to explain to them is like, you know, your life is going to significantly change for this dog. And people are beautiful and they're brilliant and they step up for these dogs. But I don't think that people should have to do adopt dogs unknowing, I think that we should be more responsible about helping people understand each individual's dog's needs, um, and helping and empowering people to get dogs from responsible places if that's going to fit into their lifestyle better.
1: Yeah, I completely agree, and I I really hope in the future that rescues are able to be more and more responsible, and there are some wonderful rescues out there, but unfortunately a lot of them, it's, it's such a hard thing to be working in rescue because you see all these dogs dying and you want them all to find homes. But at the same time, they have to be fair to the general public who doesn't know the dog, doesn't know as much about dogs as those people sometimes do. Uh, so I think I I'd love to see individual o- owners being able to be more educated about the choices they're making and also rescues be more responsible in how they're placing dogs and which dogs are even looking to place in homes.
0: Yeah. And I mean, like I, for everyone listening, I do want to point out that there are sp- spectacularly easy going, easy to live with, easy to manage pit bull type dogs living in shelters. They live there. There are tons of them. I don't want to say that that's not what's happening, but I feel like it would be irresponsible of us not to shift to the other conversation of like, okay, you've got this loving blocky headed dog. There may be issues. Right. We just don't know. And that's every breed of dog, but I think particularly the pit bulls, just because to your point, they get looked over more. So I think by and large, they stay in shelters longer. And the negative things that happen right to them emotionally and physically from being in a shelter for that long, right? Like that has that has consequences that as the adopter, you're gonna have to be willing to deal with. Yeah.
1: And my guy's a great example of that in some ways. Like he was in a foster-based rescue, really well-meaning, great in a lot of things. They picked him up, it was rural Pennsylvania. So it was kind of those things where some kid was walking around kind of beating on a puppy and some other person was just like, hey, stop that took the dog away from him. So it kind of worked out. Uh, and it was like this little bitty puppy that already had these scabs and scars over him. And, and it, it's just the culture there a little bit was, you do what you want to your dog they're your property. Uh, and this rescue saved him from that situation. I feel like later went back and talked to him, the mother who was like, yeah, good riddance. I didn't want that th- thing in my house. And that was how he started his life. So then they put him in the a, in a foster. He he did great. But then through no fault of the rescue directly at all, he ended up bouncing between like, it was like 11 different foster homes or something in the first few months of his life. Oh my God. And it was all just these different things. And, you know, like like there was this really loving elderly family that had him that wanted to keep him. But then I think it was like the husband fell down the stairs and broke his ribs. And like, they were, they were already elderly. This is this growing athletic pit bull that they were just not the right home for him. And, but the guy like woke up from having fallen down the stairs with like crews next to him, like licking him being like, Oh, I'm here for you, buddy. So they, they would have loved to keep him, but it was just not physically a good match for them. Uh, so yeah, he kept bouncing around homes from different experiences. And then I ended up, to, uh, getting him to foster because he had so many behavioral issues by the time he was like 10, 11 months old, it was our estimate, just from the inconsistency and bouncing around from all these well intentioned people. And he had like severe separation anxiety, like, ate out of a house to escape being mm-hmm. alone, uh, like, severely hurt himself, like, could not be after having met him once when I went to pick him up to actually take him back to my my place, he couldn't be more than a few inches away from me. Like I remember he hated water. And yet when I got in the shower, he'd have to keep his head in the shower with me so that he wouldn't be too far away from me. Mm. So he had all these really severe issues. He had like resource guarding a lot of issues with people and dogs. And yet he was still like happy-go-lucky and easygoing in some ways. Like he was just so all over the board. And I think it was just that inconsistency and, and thankfully he wasn't as bad as some other dogs in the sense of he was still really young when he came to me. He still really wanted to be social and make connections uh, but he was he was a mess and I'm so thankful that they were looking for help for him realizing he was in this place and that I was able to dedicate a lot of time with him for him to really get much better with those things and be able to become a dog that You know, I was in college at the time, we walk around the college campus and everyone would know him and come and say hi, and they all loved him because they all missed their dogs. And, you know, almost became a a bit of an ambassador at that point, because now there's all these people who are like, oh, there's no dogs around, there's this pit bull walking around campus, like, I guess we have to make friends with him. And then everyone started loving him. And to this day, he's still obsessed with college age people.
0: Oh my God. So everyone listening, I wish that you could see right now because he is like asleep, just lounging on the couch behind her and he is adorable. Okay. So his name is Cruz, right? Yes. Okay. So you got Cruz at like 10, 11 months and there was a lot going on. So I do want to hear his story, but I do want to make the point of like a dog like Cruz who is 10, 11 months and not in great hands and then ends up in a shelter and then doesn't get a ton of work right until they're much older that's a lot of dog to deal with, right? Like I think that we have to remind ourselves that if a dog has had no structure for its entire life, there's going to be a gigantic learning curve if you take that dog into your home, right? So um, because you're a trainer, you get this, but I just, I want to be clear with everyone listening, right? That like, yes, you should absolutely adopt a dog from a shelter. I do believe in rescuing dogs from shelters, but We have a young athletic dog who's had no structure their entire life. There's definitely going to be a learning curve. So you're going to have to put on your patient pants and get help from a qualified professional to ensure the most success.
1: Yeah. And I, I love having him at that point, but he helped me become the trainer I am. And the thing is most people aren't looking to become a trainer when they go to add a dog into their family. And honestly, even though I I've now been a trainer for like close to a decade, and I have even more experience. I look back at that and I'm like, I couldn't do that right now. As much as I loved him, as much as like massive aggression wasn't even an issue for him, I still don't think I have the time and energy and patience with everything else in my life to give him as much as he needed to be able to really become a stable, easygoing guy the way he is in a lot of ways now. It was like, I, I, he was one of those logs that he had to either be created or tethered to me or he would be a mess and I could not create him because of the separation anxiety. So literally mm-hmm. I had him tethered to me 24 seven. Even when we slept, I had to have him tethered to me for the first like six months I had him or something. And that's, you know, I have a husband now who is very <laughs> understanding and lo- loves him and loves dogs, but he'd probably be like, all right, like, can we do something on our own? Can we go out and do, You know, there's a certain element of, I had to give him a large amount of my attention constantly for that period of time. And that was with me already coming from a foundation of knowing a lot about dogs, having worked with a lot of dogs. And he still needed
0: intensive help to really be able
1: to live in a normal home.
0: Yeah. Right. And and I think that you're so spot on. People don't typically adopt a dog with the intention of learning how to become an amazing trainer for the sake of survival with the dog. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, I want to give a huge shout out to so many people listening. Cause I know that so many of you did that. You didn't really want to, but you stepped up for your dog anyways, but yeah, it requires a lot, right. Of time and energy. So, okay. So I want to hear more about Cruz and his story. Okay. So you got him in 10, 11 months. So um, I can imagine it was like a year plus of pretty consistent and in- intensive training before you had more functionality and leaving him alone and some of that other stuff.
1: Yeah, there was, there was a lot that went into it. The nice thing was is I think once we got into a routine and the consistency, some of the intensity of the beha- overall behaviors he was having started going down, and it was just that structure that really helped him because uh, I think he, was, he had really been lacking it previously, and the separation anxiety is still extreme at that point, it's still something he has separation anxiety. He is well enough now that can leave him home alone for four to six hours regularly, and he's totally okay at home. No issue, but I know I can't travel with him easily because I cannot leave him in a brand new place without him totally losing it and hurting himself and destroying things still. Uh, So that's something that we're still dealing with to some extent, but it's very livable. The other things like the resource guarding stuff like that like that at this point is non-existent uh totally gone away he's still he's he's great with most people he just has his little things he picks like uh, his little ticks but overall if i'm supervising him and we're out and i kind of know his things like oh i see that you're looking a little worried you're a little stiff right now something about this person makes you a little uncomfortable Let's make sure that we have a good interaction and I'm managing this or let's just not interact with that person. Uh, So at this point, we're in a really good place. But yeah, back to back to then, he turned around a lot faster than I expected and would expect even now, partially because I spent so much time with him every single day. I didn't have a job. I was a college student. So it was every few hours, we'd be doing little training sessions on and off all throughout the day it was partially my job to work with him. So as far as him being able to be loose in the house and lounging, that took a fair amount of time, but he, at least with his behavioral issues, was making a lot of progress to be able to not be quite as expensive.
0: Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So then he matured, right. Got through some of that obnoxious adolescence Yes. and then, um, Yeah. And then you all went on to do much more stuff together because now he's 10. So, so kind of fill us in. Like you were saying that he was your service dog for a while.
1: Yeah, there was, there was a whole thing. As I got into being the trainer, there was a group locally that was looking for service dog trainers for veterans. So I got paired with that. And once he was in a place where he was so much better with things, I'm like, you know what? He needs to work. He needs a job. He's a very athletic, versatile dog. So, I was like, okay, he might be a candidate, even though he's had all these decisions in the past with how far he's come and how quickly in some ways. And he's a dog that might not do well in a typical family home because he still has a really big drive to do things much of above typical lounge around the house, go out on the occasional walk dog. Uh, so, I started doing that. And then he almost got placed twice in two different homes where I was working with them and it ended up where the people ended up backing out for their own reasons. And at that point, I was kind of coming to terms with some of my own issues. Uh, And my dad mentioned it kind of off the cuff. It's like, why don't you just keep him as your service dog? Couldn't you use him? Like you've gotten so used to having him. And it was just like this bell went off. I was just like, well, I don't know if the program's going to be okay with it at this point, but let me check because that actually like the last time where I, I had to leave him and I thought they were going to keep him because I actually left him for the night and everything. Like, I was just sobbing in such a mess. And it was like, yeah, I don't know if I can bear to part with this dog again. And then the service thought, but I wasn't sure if I would be the right lifestyle for him. But my dad putting that thought in my head, I was like, you know what? I hadn't really thought in those terms. Uh, you know, I, it's it's I have some psychiatric concerns. And a lot of times there's so much stigma involved with that, that people, a lot of people in that – that realm really struggled to come with terms with like, do I even need a dog? And that's kind of where I was at, where even though I was around dogs, had been training them, I wasn't really entertaining the thought for one for myself, but it just came together of like, you know what? He, he and I know each other so well. He's so attuned to me. And I guess like, I really am struggling with these things. He really would be insanely helpful for me. So that's kind of how I talked to the group and they're like, you know what? We love it. Sure. Keep him, keep training other dogs for us. And he became my service dog uh, at that point, And he was phenomenal. He went through so many things with me where he lived in different places where I finished college, was bouncing around trying to figure out my own life. Uh, we were in New York City for a while where I still remember like, you know, we were like in Times Square walking around and people would be staring at us like, look at that dog. And I love so much that he was a pit bull in that context because he could be an ambassador where there's certain things where he can't be. And I know those parts and I'm careful around those parts, <laughs> but he has so many elements that are wonderful and he could shine in those moments and people could see him shining in that way. That made me so proud and that, that he was there helping me. Like it was, it was, a, it was a really rough period in our lives, but he also was so wonderful for me. And I think really, a lot of people saw him in a special way during that period, which I look, I obviously look back on very fondly where we were able to, to go out and, and be so social and an advocate for pit bulls because we had so many conversations of like, oh, wait, you have a service dog, but isn't he a pit bull? Are they allowed to be service dogs? Uh, so many different reactions, but he was so well behaved in that context that most people are like, you know, can, can I say hi? And if it was appropriate, I'd occasionally do that. And they're like, that's my first good experience with a pit bull he got to go into so many more situations that otherwise he wouldn't have. And he was exposed to so many more people and they had that connection with him. And I remember just so many people being like, oh, like, like I, he actually likes it when I pet him, he likes it when I touch him, like he seems like happy about this. I'm like, yeah, he is, like he, he likes meeting new people. And people just seem so surprised about that, that a pit bull could actually like meeting a
0: stranger. And he does, thankfully for the most part, he loves strangers. Oh my God. Well, and I think too, right? Like having a pit bull in a service dog role is, I don't know, maybe quote unquote untraditional, (laughs) right? Like it's not something you see as often. And I think that, you know, it's not that all pit bulls can be service dogs because not, no, not every breed of dog can be a service dog. It takes a special temperament and trainability, but Yes. I can imagine how freaking sweet that was just to be out and like know that he was just changing minds so frequently. That's so beautiful. Okay. So I want, I want to hear just a little bit about like, um, how did your family respond when you very first started fostering him? Were they like, why do you have this pit bull? Were they worried for you? I don't know if they knew, honestly. (laughs) I mean, my parents were going through a divorce and
1: it was, I started fostering as soon as I got my first apartment on my own at college. So they were kind of going through their own stuff and I'd be like, oh yeah, she's doing dog things. And I don't think I was like, yeah, I have a pit bull. It was, it was more like, oh, she has a dog. Like, oh, it's a pit bull. Like it happened kind of later on after they've already heard stories about him, sort of knew of him. And then he became a pit bull. He was a dog first. Uh, but I think their first exposure was back when I was rescuing where occasionally we had a big fenced yard and I had asked them if I could bring some of the pit bulls over to run in the yard. And they had been really wary, but accepting of that. And then they got to meet a few in the backyard in that way. So I think they were like, okay, we've heard these bad things, but you're around them. You've been around them. What they're, you have loved our backyard. So they were kind
0: of more open to them at that point already too. Nice. (laughs) It's always so nice when the family is like, okay, you're doing a dog thing. We're just going to take your lead on this. (laughs) Yeah, it was good. I think the biggest issue was the person my father
1: was seeing at the time was highly allergic to dogs. So we were like, oh, well, we have to meet outside at social distance. So she doesn't have like a big reaction. So it it, it wasn't about the pit bull as much. It's like, oh, okay, he's a pit bull. That's kind of a thing, but not really. And we kind of moved on, which was great.
0: That's amazing. Okay, so at the time, where were you going to college? Bucknell University. Where's that? Which is like
1: Pennsylvania, sort of, I don't say central, but like uh, near Harrisburg. It's so a bigger, maybe like an hour north of Harrisburg. Please don't. upset people if I'm getting that wrong.
0: (laughs) i really bad. You're not holding you to a high geographic standard. Okay. So what was, what was the community's interpretation of him at that point when he was just kind of a wild puppy still?
1: Yeah, it was so interesting because there was the, the college community and then there was the town and it very different vibes are because the town was very small, very rural and the rescue work I was involved with there. A lot of people you know, had chained out dogs that never came inside the house, never got off the chain. That was a lot of that culture. Like, I drive by, past puppy mills. Uh, and then there was the college community and a lot of people who had pet dogs that they did training with, and very, very different ways people approach dogs. So I got very different reactions. Uh, a lot of the times when I was walking him more in town, I'd have people be like, oh, yo, look at that nice red nose. And you could see that they were like, like, very almost eyeing him up like oh yeah it's a good looking dog but like in a way that they do not want to touch him like they're also very wary of him even though he's like wiggling and trying to say hi it's like yeah you want to breathe him and I'm like you don't even want to say hi to him why are you thinking about breathing him like that that is not the kind of dog I want to promote and be a part of. Like, you want to say hi to him? Sure. And then I'd happily be like, yeah, you know, he's already neutered, the rescue neutered him, but I got him from a rescue. Maybe you want to go on a rescue if you think he's attractive. I know the rescue has lots of other puppies like him right now. So lots of varying responses, but definitely the, the town community was very wary for the most part, because a lot of dogs they saw were the chained up pit bulls growling and snarling at them as they walked by. Those poor dogs You know, uh, that was their experience with pit bulls. They hadn't had a lot of good pit bull experiences. So there was a lot of talking to people, seeing how open they are, but also people like literally yelling and running away. Like when I had him as a service dog, I had multiple times where people didn't realize he was there, were very close to me because he was really well-behaved, not sticking out, didn't realize the dog was there, would yell and run away. And then I feel apologetic, but at the same time, like he was – he didn't, wasn't even looking at them. Like he was just doing his own thing. Uh, so as much as I could, I tried to educate people, have people have a good experience, but some people weren't open to it yet because of
0: their own fears or perceptions at that point. Yeah. it really does depend, right? The community that you grow up and the images and the experiences you have with dogs. Right. And I feel like, I really want to get your perspective on this too, but I feel like in the last decade, I really feel like the public's persona, right? The public persona of pit bull type dogs has greatly shifted from what it once was. Has that been your experience too? Because I know you're in Jersey now. Like, I mean, tell us more about your community's reception of him now.
1: Yeah. It's, it's been really interesting for me, both seeing as perceptions have changed over time. And also based on where I'm at in a given moment, we haven't moved around that much. It's mostly been New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or New York, but still like, you know, more rural, less rural, more city-like. And it's definitely based on 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I was in high school meeting those dogs, the perception is so much better. There's so many more people willing to say, Ooh, I know a good pit bull. I have a pit bull, oh, I've heard some nice things about them. Whereas before, you almost got none of that. It was, it was the exception if you ever heard that. Now it's much, much more frequent, and that warms my heart so much to know that it is shifting in such a positive direction. Uh, it still seems like people in more rural places still have more of that kind of chained-out vibe when I've been there in those co- communities. I feel like change happens a little bit slower there. And a lot of times the people who are looking to get those dogs are still those, like I want a dog on the chain. They're still looking at pit bulls and that kind of perpetuates that mindset in the people in that community, unfortunately. Uh, But again, it's getting more and more countered. I think by good examples, by people like me, like I'm, you know, a, a female, not that large, you know, walking this pit bull. Like I sometimes be out walking multiple pit bulls and you see people like eyeing me up, like, wait, what, like, what's she doing over there? I'm like, yeah, see, like they don't need a heavy hand. I'm not yanking them around. They're not yanking me around. People like me can have this kind of dog and have a great relationship with them.
0: Yeah, no. And I feel like, you know, in all of these amazing conversations that I've had with lovely people, just like you, right. Is we're doing our best to advocate for our individual dogs and just leading by example, right? And I feel like there's so much power and seriously, just like being out, giving cookies, giving love and walking with your blacky headed dog, you know, like whether we know it or not, I think that that is still changing people's perceptions of the dog. Um, and, you know, to me, that's everything, right? Just like those subtle things that we're doing, we're showing up, we're leading by example. And I think that slowly but surely people's minds are being changed.
1: I really think so. And I, I feel like I've seen so much of that where I'm out training. And since I'm doing a lot of training, I, I can see people kind of looking over like, hey, what's happening over there? And I feel like that's how I feel like I've had the most meaningful impact is just being out in places where... People are, and it's just a normal part of life and there they are. It's not something strange or unusual. It's just like, yeah, it's just a pit bull out having a good time. And I know like, I'll, I'll do silly things like Cruz those all these tricks. I'm like, ooh, I see someone watching. I was like, I'll like intentionally drop his leash. He's like, oh no, I dropped your leash. Can you get the leash for me? And he'll like get so excited. He'll go pick it up and run and bring it to me. And then you'll just see those people like, wait, what? But just like, I like throwing those little things because he loves doing tricks. He knows a bunch like that. And it's just like trying to like whittle it as much as I can where they're seeing that positive interaction between me and him, seeing how happy and enthusiastic he can be
0: uh even just when we're out for a walk as much as possible yeah that's amazing so in all of your service dog work have you had you seen any other bulls come through the program post-cruise i'm not
1: involved in that program anymore that was mostly when i was in pennsylvania uh I didn't have, the, the program was national with different trainers in different areas. So within the network I was involved in, there weren't. I do love that that group did pull rescue dogs that were appropriate for work. So we were, they were open to pit bulls. It just happened to be that we weren't finding any at that moment in time at the shelters, at the rescues that were kind of service dog material. And Cruz wouldn't have been if we saw him initially. It was that like he had just been living with me for so long uh so we hadn't unfortunately I occasionally come across them online I follow them on there uh but we haven't and even when we were out walking a lot working a lot we it was you know mostly labs a few shepherds some golden retrievers that was kind of the norm for the most part
0: yeah absolutely well and like okay so a quick tangent on that so I feel like A lot of reasons why Labradors, Golden Retrievers, and German Shepherds are consistently high quality dogs for service dog work is because they are intentionally bred. Yeah. So, you know, there's some of that going on too. Um, You know, I know I've ruffled a lot of feathers, gotten a lot of unfollows and some not so nice messages about the whole responsible pit bull breeding, but I'm not going to stop. You can't silence me, people.
1: (laughs) It's hard because I feel like I definitely started out in that place where I was- all about rescue I was like look at all these wonderful dogs dying wholeheartedly no kill all the way breeders are terrible even though I don't know any breeders like why can they possibly be breeding when there are dogs dying and I was so strongly in that mindset for so long and I still think that rescue is wonderful and can be wonderful and if you choose to rescue a dog it, it, you're lovely and fantastic. And I probably will rescue my next dog. Uh, Cause I have the flexibility to be able to do that in my life right now. But so many people need a dog that is much more specific to what they need, that need a much more stable temperament, whether it's working dogs. I work with uh, you know several people that I'm helping with their service dog that really needed a stable temperament or people that n- realized that they didn't have the knowledge to get an appropriate rescue dog and vet them for behavioral issues. Like when I was a kid, we got our dogs. I really wanted a rescue dog. And my parents told me like, nope, we've never done this before. We've never had dogs before. We have to go to a breeder. And I was upset. I was furious. I'm like, I don't know if I even want a dog if we were going to a breeder. I was like so against it, but I kind of caved things. I really wanted a dog and, and that's what we did. and. In retrospect, like I appreciate that because we really didn't know what we were doing and we could have gone to maybe a bit more responsible of a breeder, but we ended up in a decent place and the dogs were, you know, fairly well bred, easily adjusted dogs that still ended up with minor issues because we didn't know what we were doing. If we had gone to a rescue and ended up with a dog that didn't have a sound, sound genetics, didn't have the best start, and we were young kids in the house at that point kind of messing around with the dog, it might not have ended up so well and my parents weren't, we were Romanian. I was born there. We came here when I was younger. They were very opposed to dogs even being in the house initially. It was like dogs are outside dogs. So for them to even agree to have a dog was such a big thing. So, uh, it, it, you know, so, so many things there, so many elements. What I want to say is I, I was really upset then, but I've really come to appreciate that having some sound dogs being bred and maintained is is wonderful otherwise what ends up happening is the dogs that are getting bred accidentally end up being the dogs with a lot of issues very often unintentionally so what starts happening is the dogs in shelters and even in the time i've been there i feel like a lot of dogs almost there are wonderful dogs in rescues again nothing against that whatsoever but a lot of the ones I'm seeing are having more and more issues, more commonly at this point, because the ones that are getting bred are the ones that have those issues that are are, are in someone's backyard where they accidentally got bred with someone. They're not they're not being responsible. They're not being careful. They're not genetically as sound. They don't have great temperaments. They're the ones that are passing on their bloodlines, and they're the last ones we want to see bred.
0: Yeah. So true. It's so true. So, um, this is something we could do a whole podcast episode on just that one topic, but we won't for everyone listening. Okay. So, um, I want to just kind of wrap it up here, but I want to hear from you about, um, do you have any favorite like pitbull educational resources, any books or blogs or accounts that you follow that you learn a lot from?
1: I wish I did. Honestly, I haven't done as much with that recently. So nothing's really coming to mind. The biggest one that I've come across is yours. Cause I love your, <laughs> your series. So I feel like at this point I haven't had the need to point people to to things as much, so yeah. which has been wonderful. Uh, but I, can't, I think yours is the big one that's coming to mind,
0: actually. Oh my god, that makes me so happy! Thank you for that. <laughs> so amazing. Okay, so um, I want to wrap it up. What is one Pitbull myth that you wish would be gone already? <sighs>
1: If I had to pick one, I think it's the unpredictability. A lot of people think that they're just convinced that even if the dog seems sound one moment, at some moment, they're going to just lose their brain and attack you and attack anything in sight. Uh, and I've had that a lot because I have I have him around my client's dogs. I, I have my client's dogs come and stay at the house sometimes. And they're like, oh, can you make sure that he's in a separate room if you're not around? Like I've had requests like that. I, I Again, just being able to have pit bulls that are okay around other dogs around people be like oh look we're doing this group hike and they're pit bulls in the hike no big deal like we're not even drawing attention to it they're just there that's a lot of kind of like i'm trying to do to help with that but that's the one thing that i see all the time it's just like they're not unpredictable they don't have a screw loose more than you or me or
0: any other dog (laughs) (laughs) absolutely oh my god i'm with you on that okay so if people want to connect with you where's the best place for them to find you
1: i'm on facebook and instagram
0: positive dogma amazing. And I'll be sure to link that up in the show notes so people can find you. Thank you so much. It was such a delight to chat with you. You're very
1: welcome. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about how you can connect with me for training, you can go to my website, agfdogtraining.com. If you'd like more training inspiration and insight, you can follow me on Instagram at a good feeling underscore NCO. If you'd like to become a member and support the podcast, please check us out on Patreon. You can check us out at patreon.com/slash disorderly dogs. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss out. Out on any future episodes and if you really like this podcast and you want to go above and beyond for me you could leave a five-star review over on apple podcast to help more like-minded individuals find us